I remember one morning uh, I was struggling with something or other, and Norman pressed the button and said, don't even try for it. Don't even try for it. The audience by this time knows your voice. Don't try to make them different from the other 85 heavies we've already done. I used to play we would... um, either you know, Mexican senoritas or a couple of times Harry Bartell and I did Indian. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, remember? Or you don't yeah. remember? No, no, I'm laughing at Harry Bartell. Oh, all right. <laughs> we probably went on the air with less formal rehearsal than most shows. It was all very casual. You'd come in at whatever the hour was, 9.30 or 10 in the morning, but you didn't settle down to work until about 11.15 or 11.30. Almost without exception, everybody had become so confident with that entire milieu, with the genre, that, you know, we, there was very little that we paused for. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 135. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, it's February of 1958, and CBS has just launched a new western, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. It's a forgotten 16-episode gem. Five years earlier, it might have been a hit. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is Jerry Goldsmith's Luke Slaughter Closing, originally recorded in January of 1958. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And Burning Gotham's first eight chapters are now out. Subscribe anywhere you'd get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Hey, what you carrying there, son? Buffalo guns. <laughs> <laughs> hey, boy, don't you know packing them great big old heavy things like make you a bow-legged for your time? <laughs> Crowley, you just shot up my paw hour back. I aim to kill you for it. When Gunsmoke went on the air in uh, April of 52, it was really the only one of its kind. In the years that followed, I think there were a good many imitators, uh, some very successful and some just poor imitations. You kidding that there Mealy Mouth Taylor down the street? Boy, I might have known. Mealy Mouth Little Son. Mr. Crowley, I'm going to put my gun back now. Next time I unshuck it, 
You better draw your own self, because I ain't going to be doing no fancy trick shooting a glass out of your hand. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Boy, you sure are fast. In February of 1958, CBS's Gunsmoke, considered by many to be the greatest Western of all time, was in its sixth radio season. The TV version was the medium's most watched show, with a rating of 39.6. Although the 1950s proved to be a great time for radio westerns, in 1958, Gunsmoke was the only one of note on the air. Gunsmoke's cast and crew had little overlap with its TV counterpart. CBS was contractually obligated to provide their radio affiliates with a promised slate of shows. And because advertisers were now investing most of their dollars into TV, CBS officials left radio to the radio people. Producers and directors like Elliot Lewis, Jack Johnstone, Norman MacDonald, and William N. Robeson enjoyed less second-guessing and more creative freedom. Writer E. Jack Newman remembered that time. Television was obviously going to move in and move in big and supplant radio drama as we knew it. But in that year and that time, radio really grew up and put on long pants. It became very adult and very sophisticated and very satisfying. However, these men and women also faced shrinking budgets. The great period of radio was from the time when I very fortuitously didn't know this at the time, obviously happened to fall into New York from that to the war. From 1937, 38 really, through the war. It was mm -hmm. only seven years. Mm -hmm. The golden age of radio. This is William N. Robeson. I am not one who suffers fools gladly nor accepts much brown nosing. I want talent. I want ability. And I will go to lengths to find it, and I will also go to lengths to put up with it, as sometimes is necessary. By 1958, he had more than 20 years of experience writing, producing, and directing radio shows. Well, Escape was an anthology show, and the truly brilliant thinking of show business at the time, since suspense was such a success, why not another show of the same kind? So Escape was pretty darn close to suspense, and very often we used the same material. The assistant director, who was Norman MacDonald for most of the Escape series, when I was doing it, and who subsequently succeeded me as director on it for a while, the assistant director's function was to time the rehearsals, to time the show, and while on the air, advised the director how he was running, fast or slow, etc., and generally to take care of the mechanical end of the production. I used the finest actors in Hollywood. He was also no stranger to westerns, having been in charge of Hawk Larrabee a decade before. Larrabee was uh, an assignment for me. I did not dream it up. Probably it was Ernie Martin's idea. Ernie Martin was the program director at that time, he went on to become a very successful theatrical producer with such things as Charlie and Maine. And I don't know what his thinking was, but it was decided in the upper reaches of management to try a Western and see what would happen, see if it had any commercial bites. So they put it on Saturday afternoon. I doubt if it went 13 weeks. The original title was Hawk Durango. And then they discovered that Columbia Pictures down the street had released a movie called The Durango Kid. So they figured they'd better change that. 
It was a series of stories centered around the main character, whose name was Hawk Larrabee, a cowhand on a ranch uh, in uh, Texas, played by Barton Yarborough, who had a wonderful and authentic Texas accent. Robeson had also been in control of Suspense since 1956. Suspense was a very, very important show. I must say that I was not the director of Suspense in its heyday. Bill Spear was. And Bill Spear did not create Suspense, but made it the great show that it was. I came along at a time when radio was paring down all of the adjuncts to great production in terms of money for stars, money for cast, money for orchestra, etc., etc., in 1957, CBS Radio saw a rise in revenue for the first time since 1950. At the company convention that November, upper management predicted that radio was becoming fashionable again. In early 1958, the network ordered two new Western programs to air on Sunday afternoons, replacing an hour of concert broadcasts. The goal was to interest national advertisers. In the meantime, unsold commercial spots would be filled with PSAs. The first show was created by Anthony Ellis and called Frontier Gentlemen. It came to the air on February 2nd, 1958. Once again, I met a lady named Bell and learned about a gentleman named Archie McLaughlin. This taking place in Deadwood, Dakota Territory. Frontier Gentlemen. Breaking Walls covered Frontier Gentlemen in episode 101. The second show's assignment fell to Robeson. It would be called Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. Dan and I were just talking about, on the, a little while ago, about Bill Robeson, who was a rather difficult man. Yes. <laughs> Egocentric to a fault. Always wore capes. Didn't he wear capes? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he could have been the Phantom of the Opera. I yes, guess. that kind of thing. <laughs> I think it had red silk lining or something. But, uh, and he wasn't really difficult, but he was... He made himself known. Yes, he was a very commanding president. Commanding indeed. And he well, he wanted to rewrite every script. I mean, you, you, yes. the, the original script had no resemblance to the final product. Right. right. And he did Calling All Cars. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. One of yes. the first uh -huh. things that mm -hmm. I remember. And a lot of Big Town. Mm -hmm. He did Big Town. Yes, true. Big and Big Suspense. Town. He did some Suspense. Robeson attracted talented people into Slaughter's creative process. The going rate in 1958 for a radio script was $450. Lucian Davis would produce scriptwriters like Alan Botzer, Don Clark, Robert Stanley, and Tom Hanley, who also provided editorial supervision. Hanley shared sound duties with Bill James. Gunsmoke director Norman MacDonald remembered their work. It had always been a rule of thumb in radio that there should not be any dead air, that people must keep talking. Well, we changed that, not because we deliberately set out to change it, but just because the people we were working with didn't talk all the time. So we had to fill it with sound 
patterns. We had three sound men for the most part, Bill James, Tom Hanley, Ray Kemper, who contributed more to the show than anybody could ever imagine. For example, the boys on their own time realized that we were having trouble with live gunshots. They, on a Saturday, went out with some equipment of their own and recorded shots on tape with a 45 and with a 38 and with a 32 and I think with a 22. These effects then could be played directly through the line so that it didn't flatten out and become just a, a dull pop. Luke Slaughter would be set in the 1880s around southwest Tombstone, Arizona. The title character was based on John Horton Slaughter, a Civil War cavalryman and Texas Ranger, noted as a trail driver, gambler, and cattleman. Slaughter also served as the sheriff of Cochise County in Arizona and inspired a series on ABC TV that same year. The supporting cast would be filled out by Hollywood Radio's most famous character actors, like Harry Bartell, Lillian Baif, Lawrence Dobkin, Jack Crucian, Junius Matthews, Shirley Mitchell, Jeanette Nolan, Virginia Gregg, Vic Perrin, Parley Bear, Howard McNear, and Sam Edwards. They were like a family. They looked out for each other, including those less fortunate, as Jack Crucian and Shirley Mitchell remembered. Shirley, during the break, we were talking a little bit about when the mishaps would happen or people wouldn't be around, that you always had a backup handy. The actors in the hallways. The actors lined up in the hallways. They were always two or three or four, sitting, waiting for something to happen. Either that or just coffee clock. Or time. just, yeah, right, <laughs> visiting with visiting, one another. Telling about what they could have been. Exactly. <laughs> and suddenly the big break happens and they are. Knowing right? each other. I mean, it was heaven what they had done in their past. One. I'll never forget was Dickie Ryan. Did you oh, know Dickie? Oh, of course. Sweet darling man. I tell you, out of he, Audible. Would, he came out of right. Audible. And yeah. most of them did. Mm -hmm. A lot of them. Right. But in the early days, he would sit in the lobby at CBS. And you know, there were several times when he really did get a chance to go in and do something mm -hmm. because an actor didn't show up. So it worked. I mean, it paid off. Well, it was also good because the telephones which go to your exchange, go to your answering service, always <laughs> kept a phone there. That's right. And a lot of actors who didn't work, but who wanted people to think they were working, would run to the phone and pick the phone up and say anything for and whatever their name was. And then they would say, really? What time? And they'd pull out a piece of paper right. and a, or a pad and a pen or a pencil and write it down. At what time? Which studio? Oh, okay. I'll be right there. <laughs> So it looked really good. Looked they, official. It's the same thing as the people who used to go into the Brown Derby and get themselves paged Page. in case exactly. there was right. anybody there who didn't know they were still around. Or right? found an old script and or, shoved it right. in their pocket. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Always walked around with a script I, in the pocket. I always pocket. remember Frank Nelson. He always had four or five scripts sticking out of his pockets. And they you were, knew no, he was his working. Were, his were legitimate. His were legitimate. Yeah. This yeah. Cut three. Luke Slaughter signature. Jerry Goldsmith, then a CBS staff musician, was tasked with creating the musical score. Cut four, Luke Slaughter's signature, take two. Picked a star was a 26-year-old named Sam Buffington. 
Buffington appeared in at least 39 TV shows and nine movies in less than four years. Luke Slaughter would be his only radio credit. It's the same old story. We bright young men who contributed the ideas to radio were urban-oriented. We were operating out of Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles. Those who operated out of Los Angeles, their subsidiary ethnic characters would be Japanese. Those of us who operated out of New York, our ethnic characters would be uh, the stock black or the stock Irishman. And those who did their radio out of Chicago ate the manners of New York, ate the mores of New York. But they wouldn't think for a moment to look uh, towards the West. They were very close to it, therefore they overlooked it. When Luke Slaughter debuted on Sunday, February 23, 1958 over CBS, network radio had shifted focus. Car radios had become standard. That month, U.S. Radio Magazine reported 55% of all peak listening came from cars. Auto rating measurements were underway, but ineffective. If you'd have turned on your radio to WCBS in New York that Sunday, you'd have heard news reports at the tops of most hours. Concerts and other broadcast programs filled the dial between 11.30 a.m. and 2 p.m. Slaughter signed on at 2.05 with CBS's first fiction show of the day. Chairman William Paley still believed in radio drama. Americans were on the move, and there was still an audience to reach. Opposite Slaughter, NBC broadcast a talk show, The Sound of Science. ABC was in the midst of Dr. Oral Roberts. Mutual WOR aired Studio X matinee. Slaughter's my name. Luke Slaughter. Cattle's my business. It's a tough business. It's a big business. I got a big stake in it. And there's no man west of the Rio Grande big enough to take it from me. Slaughter of Tombstone. Luke Slaughter of Tombstone, Civil War cavalryman turned Arizona cattleman. Across the territory from Yuma to Fort Defiance, from Flagstaff to the Huachucas, and below the border through Chihuahua and Sonora, his name was respected or feared, depending on which side of the law you were on. Man of vision. Man of legend, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. It was a long, hot ride to Laredo. The last day I pushed it hard, eating dust all the way. I didn't know if I'd be in time or not. When I rode up to the cantina in town and went inside, I saw I was. Barely in time. The two of them were sitting at a corner table, 
From the sound of it, the deal was just about closed. Me and my boys will bring that herd up across the border for you in good shape. Hell, I hope so, Hancock. The association's pretty worried about all the trouble we've had on these drives before. Excuse me, gents. You Ben Wilkins? Why, yes. President of the Cattlemen's Association? Yes, that's right. I don't think I know you. Look, mister, we're talking business. That's why I'm here, Hancock. How come you know my name? Wilkins, I understand you're aiming to bring a herd of cattle up from Mexico into Texas. What's that to you? You're missing a good bet. Why don't you drive them west, to Arizona? Arizona? That's right. Haven't you heard about the new mines opening up around Tombstone? Everybody and his brother's headed out there, and they all gotta eat. That means a good market for beef. A lot better price than you get around here. He's crazy, Wilkins. That's too far to drive a herd. Hell, it's sure too dangerous anyway. Why, there's banditos, rustlers, even Indians, maybe. I took a herd out there last month. It wasn't near enough to take care of all those beef-eating miners. I'll drive your herd out there for you, for a percentage. Now, you just shut that big mouth of yours, mister, whoever you are. I'm the one drives Wilkins' herds wherever they go. Oh. Wilkins... You can't afford Jess Hancock anymore. What do you mean? The last herd he brought across the border for you. How many did he uh, lose along the way? Why, 43 head. Could have happened to anyone. Banditos, that's what it was. Mexican bandits, huh? Here's a bill of sale. Might interest you, Wilkins. Seems last week a rancher named Hollister bought 43 head in good faith. Paid for him proper. Man who sold him was Jess Hancock. What? That's a lie. Take a look, Wilkins. That Hancock signature. What? It sure is. Nobody's going to accuse me of wrestling. Don't try it, Hancock. I can kick that gun out of your hand before you get it loose from their holster. You just try it, man. You convinced, Hancock. Who are you, mister? Slaughter. Luke Slaughter. Oh, I've heard of you, Mr. Slaughter, but I didn't know you was in these parts. You don't have to mister me, Wilkins. Just Slaughter's good enough. Hancock, the association's going to hear about this. If those are the same 43... You got no proof. We'll see about that. Slaughter, you said Arizona, huh? A lot of hungry miners in Tombstone. Bigger price, huh? Half again as much. Meet me back here in an hour. You got yourself a job. I'll be here, Wilkins. Now, you hear me, Slaughter. I don't care what your reputation is. You ain't gonna beat me out of this. I'll stop you. Here I am, Hancock. And now's as good a time as any. Go ahead. Yeah, you can talk mighty tall with my gun laying there on the floor. Oh, yeah. Your gun. There it is, Hancock. And I'm just as far from that table it's sitting on as you are. Now go ahead. There's, uh... There's other ways, Slaughter. There's other ways. Now, look, Slaughter, when you signed for this job, you guaranteed me six good trail hands. I didn't know you were just going to pick them cold out of the bar here. That's the difference, Wilkins. They're not good hands now. They will be by the time we get to Tombstone. I'll see to that. Yeah, I guess you will. How many you got so far? Two Mexican boys who know the country pretty well and a cook. 
It still leaves you three shy. I'll get him. Say, mister, your name's Slaughter? Yeah. Mine's Rusty. I hear you're looking for trail hands. Maybe. You ever been to Tombstone? Not with a herd. Didn't know anybody had. This will be the second. I've been almost every place else you can take a herd, I guess. Dodge City, Cheyenne, the Panhandle, you name it. All right, I'll take you. Uh, you the one that's hiring, mister? That's right. But you look a little old for the drive I've got in mind. Tombstone's a long way. Don't worry about that, none. I'll keep up. What's your name? They call me Wichita. All right, Wichita, you're on. Got room for one more, Slaughter? Who are you, son? Name's Carson. Jim Carson. You ever ridden trail before? No, but I don't figure it'd be too tough. Besides, Slaughter, I come in handy when there's trouble. Oh? How about when there's work? I'll work. I need the money. I want to buy me a gun. You already got a gun. I want to get me another one. All right, I'll put you on. You say your name was Jimmy? It's not Jimmy, it's Jim. I don't like being called Jimmy. Go get your stuff together, Jimmy. I guess you didn't hear me, Slaughter. I said I don't like being you called You want to come along or don't you? I want to come. Then get moving, Jimmy. I don't like that one, Slaughter. He's on the prod. Could be, Wilkins. I take a chance with him then. I don't want any trouble with this herd. Now, just a minute, Wilkins. I didn't guarantee no trouble. Matter of fact, I'd be surprised if there wasn't. I guarantee just one thing to bring that herd through. That you can count on. Oh, I've seen young punks like him before, Slaughter. They go run with a chip on their shoulder trying to show how tough they are. He probably heard about you. What about me, Wichita? Well, no offense. You've got a kind of reputation, that's all. Punk like that, sooner or later, you'll probably want to find out how tough you are. <laughs> Maybe. I heard him shooting off his mouth at the bar earlier about how he'd gunned down a couple of men here and there. Oh? I bet he's awful green on the trail, though. You can show him the ropes, Rusty. Maybe the trail will take some of the toughness out of him. Anyway, I need what men we can get. He goes with us. You're the boss. Where are we heading from here? Delgada. Little town below the border. That's where we pick up the herd. When are we leaving? As soon as we saddle up. Tonight? Yeah. We should be able to hit the trail with the cattle tomorrow afternoon. Make a few miles toward Tombstone before dark. Well, what's the hurry? There's a man named Jess Hancock. Wouldn't mind making a little trouble for me. I want that herd all in one piece. To start with, anyway. Junius Matthews played Wichita. Vic Perrin guest starred. You did a lot of gun smokes down through About the years, right? About three out of four, I would say. And <laughs> I, my my week was incomplete if I didn't have a call for the show. If if I had a choice between taking a, a weekend cruise from here to Ensenada uh -huh. or working a gun smoke show, I would take the gun smoke show. It was, was more fun. fun. It was absolutely it was it was heaven. We laughed until we cried all through the rehearsal. Really? It was like uh, uh, the script. On the first reading, uh, there was no resemblance to what the eventual show would be. It, it was like uh, doing Second City. Uh, it was improv from, from the very first line uh, on until we struggled through. How they ever got even a semblance of a timing on the show, I don't know. Reminds but, me of a line attributed to uh, Bob Hope when they were doing ro road pictures, and some of the writers came on the set, and, of course, Hope and Crosby were guilty or 
I don't know if that's the word to use, of a lot of ad-libbing. And Hope, noticing the writers watching them work, said, listen, you hear any of your lines, yell bingo. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he really did that or not. You know, those guys were absolute geniuses. Bill James, Tommy Hanley, Ray Kemper. They, they had the best-sounding gunshots that you have ever heard on radio. And they went up in uh, Franklin Canyon, and they recorded shot after shot with the reverberation yeah. and all. And the way they would walk down the boardwalk, uh, rattling the spurs. Oh, yeah. They, any move that, that Bill Conrad made. The squeak of a chair. Yeah, was just, just marvelous. It gave a whole dimension to the show. And the boys on Dragnet were awfully good at that, too. They, those were the two real prizes when it came to sound effects. Pretty good-looking herd, Rusty. Yeah, but no herds worth pounding leather like we did all the way down here to Delgada. Slaughter said he wanted to make it by this afternoon. He did. Where is he, anyway? Signing the papers over there at the pens. I don't see why we can't hang around town tonight, leave in the morning. Well, why not take it up with the boss? Here he comes. You think you're pretty funny, don't you, Wichita? (laughs) Just once in a while, son. Well, I guess we're all ready. Rusty, how about the cook? Oh, he's got all the grub loaded in the chuck wagon, ready to roll. Good. Senor. Senor. What? You're Slaughter? Yeah, who are you? I'm Carlota. You are going to Arizona? Yeah, Tombstone. Why? Take me with you. What? I want to get away from this place. I want to go to Arizona. Please take me with you. Sorry. What are you doing here, Carlotta? Come on, back to the cantina where you belong. Well, well, Jess Hancock. How come you're down here? This is my stamping ground, Slaughter. Or was... I ain't forgot. I didn't figure you had. First you take my job, now you try to take my girl. Now just a minute, Hancock. Don't get things any more twisted up than you can help. Get moving, Carlotta. You leave me alone. Get I hope you have a real pleasant trip to Tombstone, Slaughter. I better have... Getting pretty dark, Slaughter. Don't you reckon we'd better get that herd bedded down for the night? A little further. You've been avoiding the regular trail. Expecting trouble? I usually do, Wichita. I've been watching you around horses, Slaughter. Been thinking you was in the cavalry. Oh? I heard about a man named Slaughter once. Commanded a regiment from Illinois in the war. Yeah? Raiders, they was used to raid across the line. This slaughter I heard about, he always used to come back leading a string of Confederate horses with their saddles empty. I've been thinking you're the same slaughter. And I've been thinking you're a pretty nosy old man. (laughs) Yep, that's me. (laughs) Well, this is far enough. Rusty, go bed down here. Right. Wichita, that chuck wagon of ours. I just saw the tarp move. There's somebody inside. Yeah, I saw it too. All right, Carlotta. Oh. Get out of there. Please, senor, I want to go to Tombstone. You picked the wrong way. But you don't send him back now. It's night, it's wild country. You wouldn't do that, would you? You counted on that, didn't you? All right, you'll go with us. Oh, gracias. But you'll earn your way. You'll help the cook, you'll clean up after him, you'll wash the dishes. Work me like a horse, huh? Or worse. Maybe you like the horses better. 
There's one big difference. I invited the horses. After we bedded down the herd, the cook wrestled up some grub. Carlotta was plenty sullen, but she worked. Jimmy kept eyeing her, so I figured I'd better put him on night herd. I turned in around midnight. Everything was peaceful. But it didn't stay that way very long. Slaughter! You hear that? Yeah. Where'd they come from? Well, I don't know. But it's got the herd riled up. There they go! They stampeding, Slaughter! They stampeding! In a moment, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone returns. Somebody ought to set Jack Benny straight about how to make a movie because he's at it again. When you join him later on today, CBS Radio's misguided matinee idol will attempt his own version of a famous movie. To make it even better, Hollywood producer Stanley Kramer, who made the movie, will be right there when he does. For a hilarious example of how not to make a motion picture, hear the Jack Benny Show later today on most of these same stations. Henry Morgan and Mitch Miller will be around following Jack Benny. Henry Morgan is host on the fast and funny guessing game, Says Who? His star-studded panel of experts spark one laugh after another as they try to identify memory-teasing mystery voices. And speaking of stars, you'll find an hour of fast and funny conversation with the biggest name stars of Hollywood and Broadway waiting for you on CBS Radio's Mitch Miller Show tonight. And now, Act Two of William N. Robeson's production of Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. Wedgetown, turn him in. We gotta get him turned to Miller. You're getting too close, Slaughter. Jerry, rest me over there. I can't turn the bunch in the lead. Slaughter, watch out. They'll run you down. Yeah, yeah get around. Rest me, head off that lead steer. Right. Let's get him slow. Whoa. Barbara. Yeah. That was close, Wichita. Yeah. I thought I'd seen everything, Slaughter. But I guess I was wrong. What do you mean? Riding into that herd the way you did. You know a better way to turn him? You could have been run down, killed. Maybe. Timmy. Come out over here. Look. Look, Slaughter, up on the ridge. Small fire. Could be Indians. We'll go up and take a look in a minute. What do you want, Slaughter? Those two shots that started the stampede. Sounded like they came from over near where you were. You fire those shots, Jimmy? I said, did you fire those shots? Yeah. Why? Why? Thought I saw something moving in the dark near me. Figured it could be trouble. So you just hauled up and blasted away, huh? Pretty spooky with that six-gun of yours, aren't you? I tell you, I thought someone was coming at me. You almost cost us the whole herd. You want two of those guns, but one's too much for you. I'm taking your six-gun, Jimmy. No, you ain't, Slaughter. I'll leave you your rifle in case you run into trouble on the way to Tombstone. But I can't take any more chances on that itchy trigger finger of yours. I'll hand it over. Ain't nobody gonna take my gun away from me. I'll... I'll draw on you before I let you... No, you won't. I'd... 
Maybe you ain't heard about them two men I gunned, Slaughter. Yeah, you were shooting off your mouth about it in the saloon, but I don't believe it, Jimmy. You never gunned a man. And you're not going to start now. Now hand it over. But first. I did... Let's have it. All right. Now get back to the herd. Yeah, you've taken a lot away from that kid, Slaughter. First calling him Jimmy, and now taking his gun. I had no choice. Uh, even so, you cut him up, and he won't forget it. You're trying to be my conscience or something, Wichita. Oh, like you say, I'm just a nosy old man. <laughs> <laughs> then let's go nose around that fire up on the ridge. Sam Edwards appeared as well. I'd come back, uh, wound up the war in the, the China-Burma-India theater out there in the jungles and came back to Hollywood. I was still in uniform because my clothes wouldn't fit. I'd lost weight. I hadn't gained weight. <laughs> so uh, my brother Jack was uh, playing on Cavalcade of America. Now, when I left, Jack Zoller was acting. I said, Jack Zoller's directing? I'm producing. He says, yes, yeah. I'm working on the show this afternoon. He says, I've got a conflict. We all had conflicts in those days. He said, could you stand in for me on the first reading? It was on Cavalcade of America. He said, he's got the lead role, a character called Archie with Lloyd Nolan as the star. So I said, oh, my God, I haven't read you know, the script in three and a half years. You know, I said, I don't think I could. He says, just rehearsal. I said, okay. So I said, okay. So I go down, and I'm still in uniform. Read the part around the table. And Jack said, how would Jack feel, you think, if I let you have this part? Oh, I said, oh, please, no, don't, don't, don't do that, don't do that. Oh, so about that time, after the first reading, Jack comes in, and Jack Zoller approaches him about it, and I said, I have none of it. No, I won't do that. And Jack said, you're doing it, and he walked out of the studio, says, you're stuck. So here I am, and I went on the air, and, you know, with, before an audience, all the lights, and I was really... I was in sort of a dream world. Sure. I, I didn't realize Still after the in show. Your uniform? I didn't realize it was a wonderful part. This Arkansas character, and uh, he just said, "I think your voice is better for it." <laughs> but after the show, I just I thought, "What have I done?" <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Was I really on the air? And it was a strange, yeah. strange <laughs> feeling. Sure. So anyway, that got me started. Neil Reagan heard it. Next day, I'm called for Dr. Christian. George Fogel, and this boy, the first week, I'm right out of the Army and working six or seven shows in the first week, and I thought it was going to take me a long time to get started again. There's some dirt on that fire, Wichita. Get it out. Right. And nobody around here, you know, this could be a signal fire. Think it was Indians at Littich? I doubt it. I think it was intended as a signal for Jess Hancock, so he could locate the herd. You suggesting somebody in our outfit set off the fire? Could be. But the stampede, we was all there. The fire could have been lit just before the stampede. You say somebody in the outfit, uh, that'd include me? Yeah. Right now, Wichita, there's only one person in the outfit I'm sure of. Who's that? Me. tell you I didn't start the fire slaughter. I wouldn't help Hancock. I told you I want to get away from him. I know that's what you told me, Carlotta. But you don't believe me. You think I'm still Hancock's girl. Why don't you trust me? Why don't you be nice to me, huh? Maybe I could be your muchacha. 
Sorry. Right now my job's riding herd on cattle, not women. Oh, would you make me sick? You don't care about nobody but yourself. Is she right, Slaughter? What? <laughs> oh, Wichita. I might have known you'd be listening. Yep. Well, Slaughter, the herd's quieted down. Two Mexican boys are keeping an eye on it. Did Carlotta admit anything? No. I wouldn't trust her any. I don't, Rusty. You want us for anything more, or can we turn in? In a minute. I want to lay out the plans for tomorrow. I think we're in for some trouble. How so? Well, we've got two possible routes through the country ahead, Rusty. Through a narrow pass or along the river bottom. The question is, which way to take the herd? You expecting to be drag gulched? I wouldn't be surprised, Jimmy. Yeah, that narrow pass would be the logical place for a bushwhacking. Why not take the herd through along the river bottom? Well, there's one thing wrong with that, Rusty. Yeah, it could be just what Hancock wants you to do. Right. You might be trying to outfigure me. There's a lot of willows and underbrush along that river bottom. You could be holed up there. That's why we're going to take the herd through the pass. We'll start right after sunup. I didn't know if my bluff would work or not. It was the only way I could find out who Hancock's spy was. I rode away from camp toward the herd. Whoever it was, I had to give him a chance to make a move. And it didn't take long. Pretty soon I heard muffled hooves moving away. I rode back to camp and took a look. It was Rusty. He was gone. Carlotta's gone too, Slaughter. I guess she wasn't so anxious to get away from Hancock as she let on. So Rusty's gone to tell him that we're bringing the herd through the pass. It's just what I wanted him to do. Unless he knows this country a lot better than I do, he's going to lead me right to Hancock. You're going after him? Yeah. They should give me the slip. We're going to be in for some trouble. What do you want us to do? Split the outfit in two, Wichita. Take half the herd through the pass, the other half through the river bottom. Be ready for trouble, especially in the pass. Let me take the pass, Slaughter. You, uh, you sure you want to? Yeah, real sure. And I think I can handle it. I think you can, too. Oh, and, uh, you might be needing that six-gun of yours. Here it is, Jim. Thanks. Luke? <laughs> Slaughter will do. Get moving at sunup. Join up on the other side and wait for me. I picked up Rusty's trail. He was headed for the ridge between the pass and the river bottom. It was getting light when I reached a shortcut where I could gain some ground on him. But I gained too much. Just as I got back to the trail again, a horse came pounding around the bend carrying Rusty and Carlotta. He pulled up when he spotted me and shoved Carlotta off. Get off! Then I saw he'd been holding a gun on her. His slug burned my shirt as I dove at him. Uh. Slaughter, you... You all right, Carlotta? I think so. Rusty made me go with him. He was taking me back to Hancock. Slaughter. It came from those rocks up above there. Take cover. All right. Oh, I can't walk. My ankle is twisted. All right. All right. I'll carry you. Get her up behind this rock. You'll be all right. There. Sit here. You'll be safe now. I was wrong about you, Slaughter. What do you mean? You do care about somebody beside yourself. Gracias. It's got to be Hancock up there in those rocks. Here, take my rifle and stay put. 
I'm going to try and circle around behind him. There was a big shoulder of rock above me and to my left. If I could get around that, I might be able to get behind Hancock if he didn't hear me coming. There he was. Twenty yards away. His back to me. His gun in the holster so he could get a better handhold as he edged his way along the rocks. I holstered my own gun and stepped out into the clear. Hancock! Slaughter! Yeah. Here I am, Hancock. Now go ahead. Draw! I don't like it, Wichita. Slaughter should have been here by now. He'll be long, Jim. Well, maybe we ought to head up there and see if we can find him. He could be in trouble. He said wait for him here. Well, even so, maybe... Here he is, coming up the draw. Carlotta's with him. Ain't that uh, Rusty's horse that she's riding? Yeah. And Slaughter's leading another one. Uh-huh. With an empty saddle. Heard all right? Yeah, all in one piece. No trouble. But it uh, looks like you had some. A little. That horse you're leading, is it Hancock's? It was. I knew you could outdraw him. Matter of fact, the draw was about even. But how come you... Jim, you got a couple of things to learn. It isn't getting your gun out of your holster that's the most important thing. It's what you do with it once it's out. <laughs> you figure Hancock was after the herd or after Carlotta? I didn't take time to ask him which at Luke Slaughter of Tombstone, starring Sam Buffington. Written by Robert Stanley, with editorial supervision by Tom Hanley, and directed by William N. Robeson. Supporting Mr. Buffington in the first of this new series were Lillian Bayef, Eddie Marr, Herb Vigran, Sam Edwards, Junius Matthews, and Vic Perrin. Next week at this time, we return with... Slaughter's the name. Luke Slaughter. When we meet up again, you can call me that. Luke Slaughter. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. 
Each episode features a classic or maybe not so classic story from the Old Time Radio Vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. After Luke Slaughter signed off, Frontier Gentlemen signed on with its fourth episode. It was called Kendall's Last Stand, and was one of the most gripping shows in the run. Come on. We'll never get across the clearing without them seeing us. Can you throw the hatchet? Very good at throwing. You watch. Together. One. Two. Three. Oh, blast. Fine bloody aim you've got. Quick. Barely see them now. Shoot, and for Lord's sake, don't miss. Shoot! John Daner starred. Well, uh, Tony Ellis wrote it, directed it, produced it, everything. And I think it was one of his finest efforts. I know this, that Tony liked that show better than any show he had ever done in his life. And I think it showed. And I was very close to Tony. And he would very often refer to that show as uh, with great affection. It was one of those shows that I think was so well written that uh, it played itself. When we returned to the Rosebud the next day, the Battle of Little Bighorn was over. As Lieutenant Snow had predicted, it had been a massacre. Custer's troops had been wiped out. Those other wounded under Major Reno's command were being carried aboard the riverboat. Five minutes of a roadshow followed, and then five more minutes of news. After a New York Philharmonic concert, Suspense signed on at 4.35, guest starring Carl Swenson and Kathy Lewis. The story, Five Buck Tip, is a thriller about a twin trying to escape the electric chair at the expense of his brother. It aired at 4 p.m. from KNX in Los Angeles. CBS had found multi-sponsorship for the series in late 1956. As mentioned earlier, William N. Robeson was also in charge of this production. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. Am I my brother's keeper? Has often been the agonized cry of mankind when the troubles of his fellows have been heaped upon his shoulders. Our story tells of a man who was not his brother's keeper, but who was designed to be his brother's corpse. And it requires one actor to play identical twins. Now, dual identity roles are difficult enough in the visual medium, but they can be solved by technical tricks. In radio, they depend completely on the vocal skill of the actor. That is why we have asked one of radio's finest actors, Mr. Carl Swenson, to complete this assignment. Listen. Listen, then, as Mr. Swenson stars in The Five Buck Tip, which begins in exactly one minute. Another visit with Joe and Daphne Forsythe. Joe? Yeah, Daphne. 
you think I should go on a diet? No. But I'm adding weight. Only in the right places. Flatterer. Seriously, if I put on any more pounds, I'll be out of style. What style? The current one. It calls for that slim, chic look. The beanpole look, you mean. Boy, I don't get it. Here we are, citizens of the healthiest country on earth, with hundreds of different kinds of good food. And what are Americans doing? They're starving themselves. Well, it's fashionable. I don't want you to lose interest in my figure. Don't worry, I won't. Say, speaking of that, look at this. Here's a figure with real interest. Oh? $45 billion. It says here in the paper that the investment in United States savings bonds has reached more than $45 billion. What do you think of that figure? Mmm, that's a lot of money. And just think, every $3 invested in bonds pays back four. That's real interest for you. I know. And every savings bond is guaranteed by the government. Right. Oh, Joe, I wish you cared about my figure the way you do about those bonds you buy every payday. Honey, I've got great interest in both. Well, you just see that you stay that way. And now... Five Buck Tip, starring Carl Swenson. A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. I had flown all the way from Cleveland to be with my brother on his last night, and it was no joyride. His picture was on page one of the Tribune under a big black headline, Governor Denies Appeal, Jardine to Die Tonight. On the plane, they all looked at me like I'd broken out of death row. I couldn't blame them. Tommy Jardine was not only my brother, he was my identical twin. At midnight, he'd be gone. This black shadow, this evil image of me that had forced me to run away and change my name so I could make an honest living. At 5.05 p.m., as a cold winter sunset overtook the East Coast, yours truly Johnny Dollar signed on starring Bob Bailey in the Durango-Laramie matter. Bob Bailey's daughter, Roberta, was a teenager at the time. Yeah, it is painful. It, those were very good times. And like I say, afterwards, when radio died, and I mean it died with a big bang, it just died out there in California. They tried to move it back to New York, and when they tried to convert to TV, so many of the radio personalities couldn't make the conversion. And until other jobs opened up, like the sponsor jobs, there were a lot of radio stars that just went completely downhill. Especially, like my father, had nothing to fall back on. He's been an actor all his life. And by the time his radio show was over, he was almost 50. He weighed about 150 pounds, stood about five foot nine and a half, and they looked at him on television and said, you're not Johnny Dollar. And he said, but I am, I've been. And they said, no, no, we have to get a six foot tall guy that weighs about 200 pounds to play the part. It was sad, it was a very sad time when TV just wiped it out. There was a prejudice against uh, radio actors on the part of television producers. When they came in, what I've read, at least, is that a lot of them were young whiz kids who came along and had a new toy, and they said, no, 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 if you worked in radio now, you've got your own way of doing things, and this is TV. And actually, when you think that working in radio would give you a credential, 
back in the early 50s, it actually worked against you. It did, because if you think of it, radio is an entirely different form of acting. You relied completely on the sound man, the sound mixer, for any sound effects that needed to be put in. Although you stood in front of the microphone, you would move your arms occasionally and act a little. All the acting was in the voice, in what came out from inside of you. You could wheel someone up there in a wheelchair, and he would project over the radio his voice, his emotion. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, has been covered extensively in episode 102 of Breaking Walls. When Dollar signed off, the FBI and Peace and War signed on from New York. After which, dramatic programming shifted back to the West Coast. Radio's remaining Hollywood directors cast familiar character actors for union-scale wages. Gunsmoke started on the air in 52, as we've mentioned, and network radio was beginning to die just at the time we were starting. I guess what I mean is that in those early days, if you were doing a, uh, a series and the series was canceled, something else popped up and you were told to start preparing for a show called such and such, which would go on the air next Tuesday. There was always something to replace the show that went off the air. By the end of the 50s, and certainly by the 60s, when a show went off the air, that was just the end of that half hour or that hour or that two hour segment and it was filled with something else and that something else usually came from new york it was a sad period for those of us who were fond of radio and enjoyed radio and indeed had been brought up in radio and it was not sour grapes throughout the 1950s norman mcdonald's gunsmoke remained radio's most popular show it aired sundays at 6 30 p.m with a repeat the following Saturday at 12.30 p.m. On February 23, 1958, they presented The Surgery. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. She, Doc. Well, she's going to be all right, ain't she? Your wife is a sick woman, Aaron. Very sick woman. You don't seem hardly right. Lucy always been strong. She don't get sick. Well, she's sick now. Whatever have you been giving her? Oh, giving her pot herb tea. Strong. Real strong. All cured us up before. Well, that's not going to cure her now, Aaron. 
Pouring all that stuff down here has nearly killed her. You fix her up, Doc. It's your trade, ain't it? It'll be a day or two before we'll know anything. Before I can even do anything. What do you mean? She's too weak after all that stuff that you've been giving her to, to stand an operation. I'll have to build operation? her up. Operation? Well, there's, there's just a chance that it'll, that it'll save her. Something's got to relieve that pressure. You aren't taking a knife to Lucy? Well, it's the only thing I know to do. It, it may not work. I can't promise you that it will, but she'll die, sure, oh, without no, it. no, no. You ain't going to take no knife to Lucy, Doc. No, she ain't that sick. I tell you, if you go on feeding her those herbs, she'll die. Well, you cut into her, she'll die, sure. No, no, Doc, get away from that door. Doc, I'm going in there, and I'll take care now of you. Now, you listen you to me. Along. Your wife's got one chance. It isn't a very good chance, but she's got one. And I'm not going to let you take it away from her if I have to keep you out of there with a gun. When... Oh, Doc, you got no right. I've got when... no right to let her die either. I'm going to send for the marshal. He'll stop you. That's a good idea. That's a very good idea. Jed. Jed. Yeah? Come in here. Ma. Is it Ma? No, son. Your mother's all right. So far. What's Doc got the gun for? Oh, you won't let me go in there with your ma. He wants to take a knife to her. A knife? I'm not here to hurt anybody, boy. I just want to try to save your mother's life. Now, I want you to go into town and bring back the marshal. The marshal? Yeah, that's what I said. Somebody's got to settle this thing. Paul? Yeah, you go along. Bring the marshal again. Law protect a man's rights. But what'll happen to Ma? Go along, boy. Go along. Now, nothing will happen to you, Ma. Nothing gonna happen to her. Now, that's a fact. Go on, Jed. You get the marshal out here. Don't let him waste no time. If you say so, Pa. I say so. Go on, now. I'll take care of your Ma. I aim to take care of her. Gun or no gun. Just listen a minute, if you will. It seems to me that in the old days of radio, and I'm going back again to the 40s and 50s, the executives, whether men like Guy Della Chapa or Harry Ackerman or whomever, were men with an experience in and a feeling for the theatrical end of the business as opposed to the business end of radio. There was a wonderful meeting of the minds when you went in and said you wanted to do such and such a kind of show. They could they could picture and understand and either agree or disagree with what you had in mind, but they knew what you were talking about. It was really extraordinarily easy to get a conference or a meeting with the then CBS brass Usually it was one man or two men, and that one man or those two men said yes or no to your idea, and you either went with it or didn't. There was no feeling of committee and that somebody upstairs would say yes or no. Somebody ought to set Jack Benny straight about how to make a movie because he's at it again. When you join him later on today, CBS Radio's misguided matinee idol will attempt his own version of a famous movie. Although the last new episode of the Jack Benny program aired on May 22, 1955, between October of 1956 and June of 1958, 
CBS aired the best of Benny in his familiar 705 time slot. With the home insurance company paying for the time, even Benny repeats attracted a sponsor. After Benny, Henry Morgan's comedy panel show, Says Who, took to the air. You think you are hearing my voice, but unless you know how to use your gramophone properly, what you are hearing may be something grotesquely unlike any sound that has ever come from my lips. Can you identify that voice? If you can, you may win a jackpot of wonderful prizes in radio's new exciting fun game, Says Who? Says Who debuted alongside the Stan Freeberg Show on Sunday, July 14, 1957. It was part of a week in which CBS Radio added $765,000 in new billings. Says Who would be sponsored every other week by Look Magazine. Ladies and gentlemen, a good evening to you. And welcome to Says Who. It's a game of sound reasoning where we have new fun with old sounds. In just a moment, we're going to be listening to a recorded voice. And then our panel of experts right here will fire questions in an effort to identify that voice. On the firing line tonight is one of the top sharpshooters of the sports writing fraternity, Jimmy Cannon. Good evening. Next, a talented lady from television and the film screen who calls everybody a good bunny. And I think she's the only performer to get fan mail from Peter Rabbit. Wendy Barry. <laughs> Comes now from way down Texas Way, a radio and television humorist, a writer, a lecturer. Well, you know, I could mention many more of his talents, but it would only embarrass him. Go ahead and embarrass me, John. I should have known better to say that about anyone from Texas. John Henry Falk. <laughs> now, panel, you have just three minutes to track down our first mystery voice. For each no answer to get to the rules of the game, the listener sending in the suggestion receives five dollars. If you sound sleuths fail to come up with the correct identification, an extra 25 is added to that listener's prize money. Now, before we hear our first voice, our announcer, Hal Sims, will tell the home listeners who this well-known gentleman is. Our panelists cannot hear me. The mystery voice you are about to hear is movie star Adolf Monju. I'm always thinking I'm free. The front cover of the March 2, 1958 Sunday edition of the Los Angeles Times spoke of President Eisenhower's recovery from a mild stroke. Two civilian airplanes crashed over Upland, killing four. Racehorse Roundtable, one at Santa Anita. Meanwhile, at 12.05 p.m. Pacific Time, Luke Slaughter signed on from KNX.
Slaughter's my name. Luke Slaughter. Cattle's my business. It's a tough business. It's big business. I got a big stake in it. And there's no man west of the Rio Grande big enough to take it from me. Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. Luke Slaughter of Tombstone, Civil War cavalryman turned Arizona cattleman. Across the territory, from Yuma to Fort Defiance, from Flagstaff to the Huachucas, and below the border through Chihuahua and Sonora, his name was respected or feared, depending on which side of the law you were on. Man of vision, man of legend, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. Ten pounds of dust this last couple of weeks. Won't be much longer, Jim. With luck, we'll be in Tombstone day after tomorrow. Won't be none too soon for me. Once I get out of this saddle, I'm going to stay out of it a while. you never been to Tombstone, Jim. A couple of things you ought to know. Such as what? It'll be a pretty wild town. Oh, they got some peaceful, law-abiding citizens there, all right. They've also got some of the toughest drifters in the world. Gunslingers? Yeah. So remember, you keep that itchy trigger finger of yours under control. Don't you worry none about me. Hold it. <laughs> What's your matter? A little smoke coming out of that brush over there. Jim, keep the herd headed straight. Come on, Wichita, let's take a look. Right. Could be a campfire. Yeah. This is... Indian country around here, ain't it, Slaughter? Indian country, bandit country, rustler country, you name it. Yeah. Well, as soon as we get up to the edge of the wash here, we... Yeah, there it is. Little campfire down near that clump of Ocotillo. The fire's out, but it's still smoking. No sign of life around. You reckon... Hold it. <laughs> Movement back there in the mesquite. All right. Come on out of there. Come out. I'm coming. Don't you shoot now. Who are you? My name's Ralston. He's got a leg wound, Slaughter. What are you doing here? You a marshal? No. I got into a scrape in Tombstone. I had to get out. With a souvenir in your leg, huh? Uh -huh. It's not bad, but it slows me down. My horse got away from me last night, and I couldn't catch it. I had a hole up here. And a scrape where you're in. I didn't do nothing wrong, mister. I'm innocent. I didn't ask you about that. I asked what kind of scrape. Slaughter. Yeah, I see him. Two of them. Rifles across their saddles. You think this fellow was a decoy to get us into a trap? No, no, that's not true. Wait, wait. One of them's wearing a badge. Yeah... I've seen him before. Taggart, sheriff from Tombstone. All right, Ralston. Just hold it right where you are. Don't try nothing. That bad leg of his, Sheriff, I doubt he's going to try much. For fugitives, I don't take no chances, stranger. Thanks for rounding him up for me. He's a fugitive, huh? He sure is. 
My name's Taggart. I'm the sheriff of Tombstone. It's my deputy, Blackwell. Been trailing Ralston for two days now. What's the charge? Payroll robbery. That's a lie. You keep your mouth shut, Ralston. Everybody in Tombstone knows you did it. Easy, Blackwell. He ain't gonna make no trouble. We'll see to that. Payroll robbery, you say? Yeah, one of the mines. He was supposed to be guarding it. Instead, he took off with it. You got any witnesses? You got plenty of evidence. I asked you if you had any witnesses. What business is it of yours? Just a minute, Blackwell. I'm talking to Tigert. Who are you, stranger? Luke Slaughter. Slaughter. I heard of you. Supposed to be pretty fast with a gun, ain't you? It's a matter of opinion. You ask me, it's more an opinion. I didn't ask you, Wichita. Oh. You got a warrant for Ralston's arrest, Taggart? Well? There's no time to get a warrant. That's funny. Last I heard, there was a judge right there in Tombstone. Wouldn't have taken you very long. How about you busting right across the border without any papers or anything? Slaughter, you got a bad habit of being insulted. That's a habit I'm going to break. Now? Let's take him, Taggart. Can you take both of us, Blackwell? <laughs> we got the drop on you, Slaughter. Well, that's a matter of opinion, too, Taggart. Meaning what? Those rifles of yours are pretty clumsy at close quarters. I don't think you got the drop on me at all. Let's find out. I'm here to take my prisoner back to Tombstone. Not without a warrant. Well, now, you ain't going to Don't move that rifle unless you're going to use it. You got a herd out there, Slaughter. You heading for Tombstone? That's right. And I'll see you in Tombstone. It's fine with me. Come on, Blackwell. Thanks, Slaughter. Thanks a lot. Get Ralston up behind you, Wichita. Let's get back to the herd. Lawrence Dobkin was featured in the cast. Years later, he and Lillian Bayef, who played Carlotta in the previous episode, spoke with Spurback. I think done? probably the best thing about the radio days was that as an actor, you could stay fluent. You were in and out. The job was done. The ease and speed of radio, the absence of commitment, the absence of time spent. You could have all the thrill and all the challenge of a full performance with four rehearsals and the air show. Mm -hmm. And you didn't spend eight hours driving to and from location and getting in and out of wardrobe and waiting for the young actors to learn how to do their parts. Now, the reason, one of the reasons I like radio is, first of all, it's like you said, you know, your imagination could do all these wonderful things. Uh, from the point of view of a woman, it was terrific. You knew what hours, you know, you knew you reported at 9, you were through at noon or 12, whatever. You could still have a home and family. And also, the most important thing is, if you could play the part, you could play the part. It didn't matter what you looked like. You were tall, short, you know, that kind of thing. It was great. I was either approaching my teens or just into my teens, and somebody schlepped me to WOR in New York, where a young man named Ted Cott. Ted Cott was directing a half-hour adventure number that was called The Ebony Elephant, 
Apparently the secret was hidden in the belly of the ebony elephant, which was meant to be a, you know, like the Maltese falcon. You could carry it around and hide it. And I was to play an evil little boy, which was no particular challenge. <laughs> and I got $5 for all the rehearsals and the broadcast and became an AFRA member the following year, went out on strike to do better than $5. By sunset, two days later, we were in Tombstone. We herded the cattle into the pens, then we went to the Crystal Palace to collect our money from the cattle buyer, Ezra Canfield. Well, I've checked them cattle over, Slaughter. He's in good condition, considering the distance you brought him. Here's your money. Count it, Wichita. Right. What are your plans now, Slaughter? Heading right back to Mexico. Pick up another herd. Good. We got a lot of hungry miners here in Tombstone. Need all the beef we can get. Now, don't tell me we got to leave right away, Slaughter. I want to see the sights around here. Tombstone's not a very good town for you to be wandering around loose in, Jim. I promise you I won't get in no trouble, Slaughter. I just want to do a little living for a change. Money's all here. All right. Jim, take it back to the hotel room. Sit on it. But what about seeing the sights? We'll talk about that later. I'll get moving. All right, doggone it. Sounds like he sure spoiled his evening, Slaughter. Well, I think we can arrange for him to get a couple of breaths of night air around here before we take off. Taggart just come in. I see him. Well, Canfield, look like you ain't too particular who you do business with. There's nothing wrong with them cattle he sold me, Sheriff. I checked them myself. That ain't what I meant. I'm talking about Slaughter here obstructing justice, refusing to turn over a fugitive to me. Where are you hiding Ralston now, Slaughter? You ought to know. You're the sheriff. What's that signify? I had a little talk with Ralston on the trail. All he wanted was to be sure of getting back here in one piece to stand a fair trial. Turned himself into your night guard at the jail. You're bluffing. Well, that'll be an easy bluff to call. Why don't you go find out? I aim to... Uh, he's a pretty poor excuse for a sheriff, Slaughter. But he's all we got. What do you expect? Who'd want the job? Tombstone's a rough town. Not too rough for the right man. I think you could be the right man, Slaughter. Me? Yeah. There are a lot of us around here who'd like to see law and order established once and for all, Slaughter. And we know about you. know you can handle the worst of them. You know, that might not be such a bad idea, if you ask me. Nobody did, Wichita. Oh, I'm sorry, Canfield. My business is cattle, not law enforcement. In Tombstone, law enforcement's everybody's business. Get over, Slaughter. Hey, if you was to take the job, Slaughter, I'll bet Jim would be glad to be your deputy. Yeah, that's all I'd need around here. He'd probably start more fights than he'd stop. Come on. Slaughter, I wonder about you sometimes. I wonder if you wasn't already a lawman once. <laughs> I wonder about you too, Wichita. I wonder if you were born with that big nose of yours or did you grow it later? <laughs> <laughs> Had it as long as I can remember. But hey, it's raining. I didn't know it ever rained in Tombstone. It isn't very heavy. Won't last long. Slaughter. What is it, Taggart? What kind of play is this? I don't know what you're talking about. Ralston is what I'm talking about. I told you. 
Ralston turned himself in. Yeah, well, he ain't in the jail now. That cell door is wide open. What? And what's more, my night guard's been pestle up. Looked like Ralston had a friend helped him to break out. You wouldn't know who that'd be, would you? No, I wouldn't. Hey, Sheriff. A horse has been stolen from Wilkie's livery stable. That's probably how Ralston made his getaway. Looks like I got you to thank for this, Slaughter. Think so? Yeah. If I handled things my own way, this wouldn't have happened. Next time you cross me, it's gonna be the last time. Don't be too sure of that, Taggart. <laughs> you know, Slaughter, you got a natural talent for making enemies. A man like Taggart, it isn't hard. <laughs> Come on, let's get back to the hotel. I still don't get it, Slaughter. Why would Ralston have gave himself up and then busted out of jail? Some men you never know about till they make a move. Ralston didn't do it alone. He had to have a friend. Maybe his friend convinced him he wouldn't get a fair trial. Maybe. Anyway, he... Slaughter, look, Jim, on the floor. He's been slugged. He's out cold. Wait a minute. The cattle money. Yeah. It's gone. In a moment, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone returns. Whenever significant events take place, you can count on CBS News to bring you first-hand and well-detailed descriptions of what is happening, often broadcast right from the scene of the event. You can count on CBS Newsmen, too, to make certain that fact is emphasized and conjecture clearly labeled. Each correspondent on staff brings a fine background in reporting to his job. And in the tradition of the CBS newsroom, they all share an uncompromising respect for the truth. So why don't you let CBS News keep you as fully informed as an expert? And now, act two of William N. Robeson's production of Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. I know, Sam, you and, and Jeanette worked a lot of gun smokes. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the people you work with on the show. Well, of course, there was everybody knows Parley Bear, Georgia Ellis. Bill. Howard McNair, and uh, you and worked on Conrad. Did, no, did never you? worked. Fine. No, Jeanette did. Mm -mm. Lillian Byoff. Yes. She worked a number of them. Harry Bartell and Vic Perrin. In fact, Vic wrote one about a baseball game, a baseball mm -hmm. story. Ball uh, And they were written by that wonderful... John Leston. Kathleen... Oh, Kathleen Hyde did the Yeah, yeah Kathleen yes. Hyde. Yes. And let's see, I think Herb Ellis worked some of them. Yes. Sure. I'm sure of that. And uh, he had rather a tight little cast. I mean, he had a little stock company there, and mm -hmm. I don't think there are more than a dozen people. Oh, John Daner, of course. Yes, and sure. Virginia Gregg. And Virginia Gregg, yeah. She worked a great many Yeah, Larry Dobkin. Absolutely. Larry Dobkin wrote a... Uh, and Larry, yes, Dobkins, Larry Dobkins. Larry Dobkins. There were about a dozen, maybe 15 mm -hmm. people oh, yes. that uh, he used on and nearly every show. Sure. I think I worked about 70% of them. I don't know. But. And, of course, the announcers, they had Roy Rowan, who was yeah. on during the early days, Clancy Cassell, who still lives in San Francisco, and, of course, one of the announcers that hardly anybody's ever heard of. <laughs> He's in the audience, so I had to throw that in. George Walsh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jim. Jim, come on, boy. Well, 
That's it, Boyd. Come on, come out of it. You all right, Jim? Oh, I, I, I guess so. What happened, Jim? I, I don't rightly know, Slaughter. I heard a noise. It sounded like it come from outside the window on the balcony. Yeah? I went over and stuck my head out to look. Something awful hard hit me on the side of the head. I went down. And then somebody climbed through the window into the room. I tried to get to my feet, and he hit me again. Well, that's the last I remember. You get a good look at him, Jim? No, he... His hat was pulled down low, and he had a bandana over his face. Was it Ralston? I don't know. He... He took the cattle money, didn't he? Yeah. Fine guard I turned out to be. Yeah, it's too late to worry about that. Just be glad you have a hard head. Slaughter. Yeah. It was Ralston. How do you figure? Remember that ring he wore? Mexican work, looked like? What about it? Had a green stone set in it, carved like a snake's head. Yeah, I remember. Here it is. I found it on the floor. Must have been jarred loose when he slugged Jim. It's a stone, all right. Well, looks like Taggart was right after all. Well, well. So you finally wised up to Ralston, huh, Slaughter? Too late, of course. Maybe not, Taggart. What's your time? Yeah. You got the grub ready? Packed in the saddlebags. Maybe next time you won't interfere when I'm trying to enforce the law. How about the bedrolls, Wichita? All ready. You're going after him, huh? What do you think? I think there's a couple of things wrong with that idea. Like what? In the first place, you get a poor chance of finding his trail at night in the rain. Rain's letting up. It'll stop soon. I want to be ready to start trailing as soon as it's light. The second thing is wrong is law enforcement is my business, Slaughter, not yours. That's my money he got away with. Yeah, but there's still a matter of that mine payroll he's got stashed away somewhere. <laughs> now look, it's Slaughter. Ain't no sense our being at each other's throats all the time. You crossed me once. It riled me, but I'm willing to let it pass. I figure everybody's entitled to one mistake. Depends on what the mistake is, doesn't it? The point is, we both want Ralston. Now, the smart thing to do is for us to trail him together. Me and Blackwell, you and Wichita. How about it? All right, Taggart. Good. Good. I'll get word to Blackwell right away. He's on his ranch out of town a ways up near Crocker Mesa. Well, he ain't a full-time deputy, huh? <laughs> this town can't afford one. I'll send word to him to meet us in the morning. We'll be ready at sunup. Let's keep in Blackwell, Taggart. We'll you be along any minute, Slaughter. It's been an hour since the rain stopped. We're wasting time. That trail's going to get cold on us, even if we manage to pick it up in the first place. And that ain't going to be easy. Easier than you think, baby. What do you mean, Taggart? I had a talk with Wilkie down the stable last night. That stolen horse had thrown a shoe off of his left hind hoof. Wilkie didn't have a chance to put a new one on. That'll help some. Oh, here's Blackwell. Uh, sorry I'm late, gents. Busted a cinch strap saddling up and had to rig a new one. No harm, Blackwell. Ten minutes isn't going to make much difference one way or another. It does to me. All right, gentle down, Slaughter. 
Now, I figure Alston headed south, out of town towards the border. We'll cover that area first. Let's get moving, gents. Looks like that was a bum hunch of yours about Ralston headed for the border, Taggart. You've covered every trail leading south out of Tombstone. Well, like I say, Slaughter, everybody entitled to one mistake. Gotta admit, it was logical to reckon he'd be headed straight south. Well, we covered most of the country west of town, too. Well, we'd just keep circling. Maybe he took off to the north. Hold up. Oh, 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 oh. What is it? Over there. Tracks. I'll take a closer look. What about it, Blackwell? Yeah. This is the one we're looking for, all right. No shoe on the left hind hoof. Heading straight west. Yeah. For the San Pedro River. Let's move. Tracks lead right into the river. Yeah, it's an old trick, but it still works. Probably rode up or downstream a ways, then out on the other side. This trail's gonna be tough to find again over there. That's pretty rocky ground. So I see. When we do pick it up again, I'll bet it turns south. I still think he's heading for the border. Let's cross and split up. Two upstream, two downstream. Right. Yeah! Whoever picked that trail on the other side fired two shots. Right. Dang, if I can figure a fellow like Rolston out, Slaughter. I sure never figured he'd take this way of paying you back for everything you've done for him. Hold it here, Wichita. What's the matter? Let Taggart and Blackwell get out of sight around that bend. Hmm. Now let's get back to the riverbank. I don't get it, Slaughter. We're not going to look for tracks on the other side of the river. We're going to look for them on this side. I still don't know what you... Get off your horse. Yeah. Now take a look, a close look at those tracks we've been trailing, Wichita. Oh. Well? There's a little dry dirt in the bottom of each one. Yeah. It was raining last night when Ralston supposed to have stolen our money and the horse and made his getaway. Yeah, rain stopped about an hour before sunup. And these tracks were made after it stopped raining. That's why you see dry dirt with the hooves cut through the wet. Wait a minute. You, you mean somebody rigged this trail to lead us on a wild goose chase? That's just what we're going to find out. <laughs> We worked our way along the riverbank. Half a mile upstream, we picked up the tracks coming back out of the river and circling. We followed them, headed northwest. Twenty minutes later, we came over a rise and spotted a small ranch house in the hollow below. The only sign of life was a few buzzards clustered on a mound in a little gully behind the ranch. We left our horses concealed and worked our way down the slope under cover. Buzzards reluctantly took flight. We saw what had been buried in the mound, or what was left of it. Ralston's body. Yeah. Whoever stole our cattle money busted Ralston out of jail, forced him out here, and killed him. Yeah. Question is, who done it? Whose ranch is this? See over there to the right? It's Crocker's Mesa. Crocker's Mesa? 
Taggart said Blackwell had a ranch near Crocker's Mesa. So Blackwell's our man. Looks like it. We we better get back to that ranch house before Blackwell gets back. Might be too late. If they figure we tumbled to the fake trail, they could circle back here to the ranch ahead of us. They? You mean Taggart, too? Soon find out. Keep down as much as you can. We'll circle around the corral. There's Taggart on the porch with a rifle. Get down. That answer your question about Taggart? Sure does. No doubt about it. They're in it together. There he goes, inside the house. We've got to bust him out of that house somehow. Wait a minute. That wagon there beside the corral. Hmm? When I give the word, we'll head for it. Get behind it. Now. Well, what now? The ground slopes down to the house from here. Let's get this wagon moving. It'll cover us. Now, shout. Stay close behind it. Be ready to shoot when it hits. She's heading right for the house. Stay low. Yeah, yeah, sure will. There she goes. Come on, fast. Yeah, there's Blackwell at the window. I'll get him. Oh! Hold it, Tiger. Drop your gun. Drop it. All right, Slaughter. All right. Don't try it. Hey! My, my, he took a little convincing. Where's the money, Blackwell? Where is it? Uh, uh, Under uh, a loose board in the the floor. Loose board? I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's our cattle money, all right. And the mine payroll. Well, I guess that's that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Slaughter, appears to me you was taking quite a chance. Just a winging Blackwell and knocking out Taggart instead of gunning him down. You don't owe them no favors. I wasn't doing them any favor, Wichita. I was just saving them. Saving them? For what? The citizens of Tombstone. Luke Slaughter of Tombstone, starring Sam Buffington. Written by Robert Stanley, with editorial supervision by Tom Hanley, and directed by William N. Robeson. Supporting Mr. Buffington were Junius Matthews, Sam Edwards, Vic Perrin, Lawrence Dobkin, Jack Moyles, and Frank Gerstel. Next week at this time, we return with... Slaughter's the name. Luke Slaughter. When we meet up again, you can call me that. Luke Slaughter. Special score for Luke Slaughter was composed and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Stay tuned now for Frontier Gentlemen, following immediately on most of these same stations of the CBS Radio Network.
everybody. I'm Lisa Brennan. And I'm Justin Trice. Are you a theater nerd or a movie buff? Are you interested in the world of fine art or the sleazy way celebrities break the law? Check out Crime of the Arts, a true crime comedy podcast that peeks behind the curtain to shine a light on the dark and untold truths of the creative arts. From film set mysteries to celebrity murders and art heists, we look past the bright lights to uncover what hides in the shadows. Join us each week when we both bring a surprise story to the episode with our pop culture-ridden sarcastic banter. Tune in every Wednesday to help get you over hump day. Crime of the Arts is available now everywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Peace out, everybody. Peace out, everybody. (laughs) The American people got a new toy. The men who owned the toy knew it was going to cost a great deal of money. And so they phased out radio. I told you earlier the story of the $80 savings they would make by moving suspense to New York. This is, they've got down to that. It got down from a 13-piece orchestra, an 11-piece orchestra, an 8-piece orchestra, to a trio, and finally to the organ. So it was that kind of attrition that occurred. And they killed it because you can spin records and you have a disc jockey or you can automate the whole day's programming. You have a newsman and a disc jockey and you operate because people went home and looked at their new toy. They weren't listening to radio. And now, as I think I said, you have a generation of people who don't know how to listen, who must have a picture. To bolster up there. And they, they missed the beauty of the human voice, which is something I think you always... Uh, well, they missed the sh- beauty of their own imaginations. It's too much effort to think. When that tube is up there, you don't have to think at all. You just sit there and eat that stuff and drink that beer and, and get fat. But, you know, we're never going to pull those men off the moon. No, we got to go now to Mars. I don't know why. You know, you kill a lot of men that way eventually. But once you've made that step, you can't go back. You made the step to television, you can't go back to radio. A lot of us old poops will talk as we're talking now, but my 10-year-old son couldn't care less about that. Despite the CBS sales team's best effort, national sponsorship for Luke Slaughter was non-existent. Only the May 4th episode managed to get sponsorship from O'Brien Paints. I'm Irma Dutro, color stylist for O'Brien Paints. Our musical theme hardly needs introduction. Just as the many instruments blend into this symphony, so O'Brien blends many pigments into the newest fashion right colors for your home, giving more color per color. We have selected O'Brien's exciting new colors of the year after consulting many leading decorators and home furnishings experts of the country. And because all these colors are decorator-approved, you are assured of rich, authentic new colors for your own home. Your nearest O'Brien paint dealer, listed in the yellow pages of your phone book, has a free color chip folder for you. He'll help you select O'Brien paints in these exclusive new colors of the year for both inside and outside your home. Stop in and see him soon. And now, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. All of the components for an excellent series were there, except the timing. By Memorial Day, the writing was on the wall. Slaughter's my name. Luke Slaughter. 
Cattle's my business. It's a tough business. It's big business. I've got a big stake in it. And there's no man west of the Rio Grande big enough to take it from me. Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. Luke Slaughter of Tombstone, Civil War cavalryman turned Arizona cattleman. Across the territory, from Yuma to Fort Defiance, from Flagstaff to the Huachucas, and below the border through Chihuahua and Sonora, his name was respected or feared, depending on which side of the law you were on. Man of vision, man of legend, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. Lots of people back east think us Westerners are rough, uncouth, and ill-mannered. Although it might not appear so to a stranger, we do live by a fairly rigid set of manners. For instance, we don't care what a man was, but what he is. All of us have come out to this new country from somewhere else, and why we came is our own business. Of course, sometimes a stranger may drift into town who reminds us of things we just as soon forget. Like the time Wichita and I were sitting out front of the Cosmopolitan Hotel, waiting for the dinner gong to ring. <sighs> sure is going to be good to tie on a store-bought feed bag, Luke. Yeah, I'm getting a little hungry myself. <laughs> well, I wasn't thinking of quantity so much as quality. I don't trust that pigtailed bean wrangler you got down at the ranch. I swear there was cat meat in that son-of-a-gun stew he made for <laughs> supper last night. I doubt it, Wichita. The Chinese are supposed to be excellent cooks. Well, somebody should get that message through to Lum Chung. Maybe you ought to bring him up here for a feed sometime so he can learn what a lard fried steak ought to taste like. Yeah, and mashed turnips, too, without lumps. Oh, when are they going to ring that darn dinner bell? I'm starving myself just thinking about it. <laughs> Morning, Luke. Howdy, Wichita. Well, Mr. Howdy. Wallace. What brings you down from the mine in the middle of the day? I'm meeting the stage, expecting a business associate in from the east. Here you struck water up at the little giant, Mr. Wallace. That's right. What's going on up there on the hill? First the sulfurette strikes water, and then contention, and now you. It seems that there's an underground lake at the 500-foot level. Well, we can sure use some more water out in this desert, but... It... It's never going to bring in as much as silver. Well, I don't imagine Mr. Wallace is going to let a little water interfere with his silver production, Wichita. Not for a single minute. We're going to install the biggest pumps west of the Mississippi. Matter of fact, that's why the man I'm going to meet is coming all the way out here from St. Louis. He uh, bringing the pumps with him on the stage? (laughs) (laughs) No, Wichita. But after I've convinced him that we can lick the water, and I will... He's going to put up the money for the pumps. He knows that yet? No, but he knows a good thing when he sees it. And believe me, boys, tombstone's a good thing. A dollar invested in tombstone today will be worth $10 in a year and $100 by the end of the century. Well, I think I'll hold on to my dollar. I ain't calculating on being around come 19-odd-hundred. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the stage and right on time, too. That ought to impress Mr. Albert W. Norton on how we do things out here. Did you say Albert W. Norton? Yes, he's the man I'm meeting. Very important in banking circles back in St. Louis. No. No, it couldn't be. What couldn't be, Luke? Nothing, Wichita. Just taking 
out loud. See you keeping right on schedule, Ed. Oh, howdy, Mr. Wallace. Yeah, I could have saved the horses a mite and been a bit late. Only I got a passenger in there. I'm hankering to get rid of Pronto. All right, mister. Get down. Get the end of the line. And you are out of a job, my good man. If I have to buy this stage line to be sure you're discharged. Ah, dryer. Welcome to Tombstone, Mr. Norton. Oh, hello there, Wallace. Had a pleasant trip? I can't say I have. Since I transferred from the steam cars to this devil's conveyance driven by a madman. Now look here, mister. Why, old Ed here is one of the best six-horse drivers in the territory. Then I can see that there is room for great improvement out here. Well, that may be so. But I'm sure after you've been with us for a few days, you'll find that there are a lot of things in our favor. Come on, Wichita, let's go. Well, let's go where? They ain't rung the dinner bell yet. We can eat back at the ranch. But, Luke, the lard fried steaks at the Cosmopolitan are the best in Arizona. And you eat mine, too. I'm getting out of town before I commit murder. Murder? Who you figured on murdering? Him. Mr. Albert W. Norton. <laughs> Coffee, Wichita? Uh, thank you, no. Uh, I uh, understand they got a new show at the birdcage. High kickers, they tell me. You feel like riding into town tonight? I don't think so, Wichita. I like it fine right here on the ranch. Uh, you must. You ain't been in town for more than a week. That's right. Ever since the day that eastern dude pulled in. Right again. Luke, I'm a patient man. Are you? Well, patient is the next, but my patience is a running out. And just what are you getting impatient about? Well, Luke, Luke, it ain't fair. You ain't never told me why you got it in for that Albert W. Norton friend of Mr. Wallace. That's right, I never have. Well? And most likely I never will. Oh, now, Luke. Wichita, I guess there isn't a single one of us out here that doesn't carry around memories that hurt, things we'd like to forget. Maybe that's why people like you and me have drifted west. Well, in my case, I know I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for... I don't want to hear about it, Wichita. Well, I don't mind telling you. I got no secrets from you. Yes, you have. And you keep them. Well, all right, if that's the way you feel. But... Oh, appears we got visitors. No, no, just young Buck Rainier. I thought you'd give him the evening off. I did. He was going into town to spark Ellie Mae Wallace. Well, his spark must have fizzled out. It ain't even dark yet, and he's back home. Evening, Buck. Evening, Luke. Ain't you back a mite early, son? Looks like. Things pretty dull up in town. Yeah, for me, anyway. What's the matter, Buck? You want to tell us? Yes, I do. I gotta talk to somebody. Well, then you just sit right down here in the stoop and spell it. Well, I guess it ain't any news to you that I... Well, I've been sweet on Ellie Mae Wallace for a long time. Well, you haven't exactly been keeping it a secret, Buck. No, I guess not, but... Well, it's more than just being sweet on her, Luke. I... Well, I'm in love with her. You sure, son? Sure, I'm sure. Well, you better be. A woman can be as treacherous as a sidewinder. And the younger and prettier she is, the more sidewinding she can be. All right, Wichita. <laughs> you know, if everybody felt like you do about women, where would the world be? Better off. Don't pay any attention to the old misogynist, Buck. 
What's that? Woman hater. That's me. How about Ellie Mae, Buck? Does she love you? Yes, Luke, she does. Well, then you haven't got anything to worry about. Oh, yes, I have. She's not allowed to see me anymore. What? That's right, Luke. I called at her house like I do every Wednesday. And her father answered the door and he told me that Ellie Mae was busy tonight. And she'd be busy every other night. And that if I was smart, I, I wouldn't come back anymore. Why, the dirty old... Didn't he give any explanation? Or... No, no, he just slammed the door in my face. But I found out the explanation. It's, it's right here in tonight's epitaph. Look. John Wallace, proprietor of the little giant mine, has announced the engagement of his daughter Ellie May to Albert W. Norton of St. Louis. So Norton's done it again. Done what, Luke? Only this time he isn't going to get away with it. What are you talking about? Saddle up my horse, Wichita. Where are you going? I'm going to have a little talk with our friend, Mr. Wallace. It's sure good of you to do this for me, Luke. I'm doing it for myself, Buck. I don't understand. You don't have to. You want me to ride in with you, Luke? No, Wichita, I'm going alone. Only here. Keep my guns for me. You going into town without your shooting irons? That's right. I'm still afraid I might be tempted to keep a promise to myself. What promise? To kill Albert W. Norton. This is audio from the final episode of Luke Slaughter, which aired on June 15, 1958. In it, we learn that Slaughter was once a young lawyer, and his birth name was Lucian. Evening, Mr. Wallace. Why, Luke Slaughter. What brings you into town at this hour? Maybe it is a little late, but I want to talk to you. You mind if I come in? No, of course not. Uh, do come in, please. Uh, sit down. Thanks. Well, Luke, what's on your mind? I read in tonight's epitaph that your daughter is going to marry this Norton fellow. That's right. A week from Saturday in St. Paul's Episcopal Church. Looks like you don't believe in long engagements. Not when it's love at first sight. Is it? Of course. Isn't this a rather late hour for congratulations? I didn't come here to congratulate you. I came to try to talk you out of it. Aren't you sticking your nose into something that is absolutely none of your business? Maybe and maybe not. Oh, uh, by the way, where is your future son-in-law? He might be interested in what I've got to say. I have no idea. He went downtown this evening. Oh, that's right. I heard there was a new troop of high kickers at the birdcage. I wouldn't know. And I don't keep tabs on the comings and goings of Mr. Norton. Maybe you should before you give him your daughter. Just what do you know about this Norton? Enough. He's a highly successful St. Louis financier. And his price for bailing out your mine is a girl young enough to be his daughter. Slaughter, I don't have to sit here in my own house and listen to such dirty insinuations. You don't, but you will. Hold on, I, I apologize, Mr. Wallace. You're right. This is none of my business, from your point of view. But from my point of view, it is. Because I happen to know Ellie May is in love with a young fellow named Buck Rainier. That wrangler that works for you? That's right. I threw him off my premises tonight. I know. That's why I'm here. 
Buck is very much in love with your daughter, Mr. Wallace. Well, he'll have to get over it. I certainly would never permit Ellie May to marry a forty-dollar-a-month cowhand. Mr. Wallace, I've never been married. I've never had any children. But if I ever do have a son, I'd like him to be the kind of boy Buck is. And to back up that statement, when he marries your daughter, I'll make him a wedding present of a couple of sections of land and enough cattle to set him up in business. Very touching, Slaughter. But Norton's holding the high hand in this game. He usually does. But this time, I don't think he'll win. I'd like to see what's going to stop him. You will, Wallace, when the hand is played. Are you threatening me? Not at all. But I'm asking you once more to give your daughter a chance to be happy. That's exactly what I am doing. And that's why she's going to marry Albert Norton. That's your final word? It is. All right, Wallace. I tried. I hope I haven't kept you up too late. But you might try to sleep on this. If Ellie Mae were my daughter, I'd rather see her entertaining the boys at the Occidental Saloon than married to Albert W. Norton. Mr. Slaughter. Mr. Slaughter. Ellie Mae. I, I overheard you talking to Papa. Mr. Slaughter, what am I going to do? Ellie Mae, are you really in love with Buck? Oh, yes. I'll die if I have to marry that awful old Mr. Norton. But you want to marry Buck. Oh, yes. So very, very much. What am I going to do, Mr. Slaughter? You just go ahead and do what your father tells you. Smile and be pleasant. And act like you were the first blushing bride in the history of the world. But, but I can't do that. Yes, you can. Because, Ellie Mae, I promise you, you will never be Mrs. Albert W. Norton. In a moment, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone returns. Tonight, CBS Radio invites you to our Mitch Miller Show. As guest of honor at Mitch's table, you're part of the excitement of show business itself. You meet the most impressive and accomplished people in show business. You learn how they got to the top. And more than that, you make friends with the biggest stars of the moment. Each Sunday night as CBS Radio's Mitch Miller Show comes your way on most of these same stations. And now, Act Two of William N. Robeson's production of Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. To hear the Tombstone epitaph tell it, the wedding of Ellie Mae Wallace and Albert W. Norton was going to be the biggest thing since Queen Victoria took Prince Albert to husband. Every edition carried another tantalizing tidbit. The bridal gown was coming by fast express from San Francisco. The bride's father had bought up all the French champagne in town for the reception. The nuptials were to be solemnized by the Bishop of Arizona himself. And listen to this in tonight's paper. The happy pair will spend their honeymoon in the east where they will be transported by private railway car provided by Mr. Wallace. Doesn't say anything anywhere about what the groom's providing, does it? No, but he must have something to offer. Sure he does. 
A line of palaver like a lightning rod salesman. Yeah, just the same. It looks like the three of us are the only people in Tombstone who won't be at the wedding. Don't be too sure about that, Wichita. I don't want to go. I don't want to see it happen to Ellie May. You don't have to go, Buck. But I think maybe Wichita and I will make an appearance. How? We ain't got any invites. And after the way you talked to Wallace the other night, I don't figure we're going to get any. Who said we needed any? This is a free country, and St. Paul's Church is a house of worship open to any sinner with a contrite heart. We're going to the wedding, Wichita, but I'm not sure we'll be able to stay for the reception. With his commanding voice, Buffington could have been a radio leading man. His physical features, though, short, stocky, and balding, relegated him to character parts in film and TV. On May 15, 1960, less than two years after Luke Slaughter was canceled, Sam Buffington committed suicide by asphyxiation. He was 28 years old. my own preparations to make, but they didn't involve bishops and champagne and such frills. They were relatively simple, and they were all completed by Saturday morning. Got the horses all saddled and waiting, Luke. Good, Wichita. I oughtn't to stay here and let you do it all, Luke. Let me come along. You just do as I tell you, Buck. You'll have plenty to do later. Yeah, but what if it don't work? Then you're where you ought to be, and where I want you to be, in the clear. Let's go, Wichita. See you in a couple of hours, Buck, if we pull it off. Good luck, Luke. Uh, Luke, uh, it don't seem right going to a wedding in work clothes. Why not, Wichita? Only got work to do. should not be performed. This is our cue, Wichita. Let him speak now or forever hold his peace. Then I guess this is the moment for me to speak, Bishop. What's going on? I know plenty of reasons why this wedding shouldn't be held. Slaughter, this is a private ceremony. Slaughter? Not any longer, Wallace. I'm making it public. And Mr. Norton knows why. Oh, Mr. Slaughter, you kept your promise. I don't know what you're talking about. You sure about that, Norton? You sure you don't remember a young lawyer named Lucian Slaughter back in Peoria, Illinois, just after the war? You're not... Yes, I am. A little heavier, maybe, and a little less hair. And the name Lucian was just a little bit flossy for the cattle country. So it somehow got whittled down to Luke. Mr. Slaughter, if you have something to say, please say it quickly. You have interrupted one of the church's most sacred sacraments. I'm sorry about that, Bishop. Folks, I know this man, Norton. He's been married before. What? You didn't tell me that, Norton. What of it? My wife has been dead for years. So I heard. And what did she die of? Well, consumption, I think it was. You think? Didn't she die of humiliation and a broken heart after you deserted her? That's not true. I did not desert her. My business took me to St. Louis and... And you thought a small-town girl like her would be a drawback? 
So you never sent for her. I don't see what all this has to do with anything. It has to do with a no-good grifter who'll make your daughter's life as unhappy as he did his first wife's. Mr. Wallace, are you going to permit this boor to interfere? I certainly am not. You've had your say, Slaughter. Now get out. All right, I'm going. In a minute. Look out, he's drawn a gun. Cover that side of the church, Wichita. I am, Luke. Mr. Slaughter, you have desecrated the house of the Lord. I'll settle with the Lord later. Come on, Ellie Mae. Yes, Mr. Slaughter. Slaughter, this is kidnapping. Is it? Or is it an act of mercy? Keep him covered till I get to the horses, Wichita. I got him. Come on, out this way, Ellie Mae. Where's he going with that girl? Now, folks, I don't hanker to desecrate the house of the Lord further with gunfire, but I will if you folks don't quiet down and stay put. <laughs> Well, Luke, there's Buck waiting for us out in front of the ranch house. Yep, and there's the Padre from Bisbee with him. Just in case you want to make use of his services, Ellie Mae. Oh, I do, Mr. Slaughter, I do. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. oh. Ellie, Ellie Mae, sweetheart. Buck. Hurry up, Buck. Get your bride down from this horse. Howdy, Padre. Good afternoon, Luke. Think you can tie the knot for these two in five minutes? I'll do my best. You better. Guess I figure that's about all the lead we've got on that wedding party. And I pronounce you man and wife. <laughs> oh, Ellie. Oh, my husband. My very own husband. Yeah, 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 Ellie, well, Ellie. Now, that can wait until later. <laughs> you got the rest of your life for smooching. You yeah. better get out of here now before your pappy gets here. You got your horses out and back like I told you about? Yeah, 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 Luke. Then you two hit the trail. I'll stall off the angry citizens. Oh, Mr. Slaughter, how can I ever thank you? Don't bother. Ride. And you, Wichita. Well, now, you might name the first one after me. <laughs> <laughs> now, get. Get. Come on, darling. See you later, Luke. Well, Wichita, let's welcome our visitors. All right, Slaughter, what have you done with my daughter? She isn't here, Mr. Wallace. Of course she's here. We followed your trail. Well, she was here, but she just left on her honeymoon. What? Why, you... Yeah, I'm afraid you're too late, Wallace. Ellie Mae has been Mrs. Buck Rainier for at least five minutes. I'll have the marriage annulled. I don't see how you can do that, Wallace. The girl's overage, and the ceremony was legal in every respect. Wasn't it, Padre? Indeed it was, Luke. I'd ask you and the losing bridegroom in for refreshments on... Oh, uh, by the way, I don't see Mr. Norton in your party. What happened to him? He fell off his horse. I'm not surprised. Well, as I was saying, I'd ask you in. Only I'm sure you have much more adequate refreshments you'll be wanting to consume at what was to have been the wedding reception. So if you'll excuse us... Wichita and I are going to have a bite to eat. We've had a very busy day. Yeah, but you still haven't told me. Told you what? Well, how you happen to know so much about that Norton fella? Well, Wichita, I suppose I might as well tell you. You'll never stop nittering me. You see, back in Illinois, 15 years ago, there was this young lawyer... Just starting out in the world. This young girl. They were very much in love and they wanted to get married. Uh-huh. But the young girl's father had other ideas. Ambitious ideas. 
And he made the girl marry a fast-talking young fellow named Albert W. Norton. Oh. And the young lawyer left town, swearing he'd kill Norton if he ever saw him again. Only you know, Wichita, <laughs> I like it better this way. Killing's too good for a rat like him. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> but there's only one thing about the whole shebang that I don't like. What's that? They left in such a hurry, I didn't get to kiss the bride. Luke Slaughter of Tombstone, starring Sam Buffington, was written and directed by William N. Robeson. Supporting Mr. Buffington were Norma Jean Nilsson, Junius Matthews, Norm Alden, Barney Phillips, Ben Wright, and Charles Seal. Editorial supervision by Tom Henley, with music composed and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. This is the CBS Radio Network. All right, but where's the sponsor who will put... Now, get this. Well, I'm talking about 20-year-old figures. Who will put $5,000 into a superb, super production. That's all it would cost in radio. There isn't a sponsor in this country but $5,000 a week. He'll put $250,000 into a film. He won't put $5,000 into a radio show. Let him give me the $5,000 and see what happens. You won't get any audience. But those you get will buy your product by the barrel. They'll be so grateful. In 1961, William N. Robeson joined the Voice of America. It's the civilian overseas broadcast agency for the U.S. government. During his 15 years there, Robeson wrote, directed, and produced documentaries. He won four more Peabody Awards. Frontier Gentlemen lasted five months longer than Slaughter. CBS canceled it in November, but with another Western in mind. It'll be the focus of our next Breaking Walls episode. Paladin? Paladin? Yeah, yeah, he was was a pretty good guy. That show really came about because of the Dick Boone television show. Next time on Breaking Walls, It's 1875, and we're at the Carlton Hotel in San Francisco. We've got a meeting with a man who calls himself Paladin. His card has four simple words. Have gun, will travel. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg, and Stuart Wright's April 2018 Spurback Radiogram article, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone, The Man Too Tough to Die. On the interview front, 
Lillian Bayef, Mary Jane Croft, John Daner, Lawrence Dobkin, Sam Edwards, and Jeanette Nolan were with Spurvac. For more info, go to Spurvac.com. William N. Robeson was with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these at goldenage-wtic.org. Norman McDonald and William N. Robeson spoke to John Hickman for his Gunsmoke documentary. Roberta Bailey Goodwin and E. Jack Newman spoke with John Dunning for his 71KNUS program from Denver. Vic Perrin spoke to Neil Ross for KMPC in 1982. And Jack Crucian and Shirley Mitchell were guests of Jim Bohannon in 1987. Selected music featured in today's episode was Pavane by Steve Urquiaga, I'll Be Seeing You by the Harry James Orchestra, and Who Lives Up There by Snuffy Walden. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio soap opera set in 1835 New York City. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts, and at burninggotham.com. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendiges, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gaspin of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls Episode 136 will highlight the most significant Western to begin on TV and shift to radio. Have Gun Will Travel. This episode will be available beginning February 1st, 2023, everywhere you get your podcast, and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until February 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 135, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.